Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Happy, uh, happy Fourth of July. Um, Fourth of July is one of my favorite holidays. Um, I think I can probably speak for, for all of us whenever I say that, uh, man, we're so thankful for the country that we live in, the freedoms that we enjoy, even just that we could come in here and do what we just did and that we could speak freely. Uh, so thankful uh, for this great country that we, that we live in. Um, after service, my family, we're going to drive uh, to Oklahoma and be with our family and can't wait to celebrate our, our country that we live in and, and blow stuff up in her honor, right? You know, that's what you do. Uh, last 4th of July, um, my son, he's five years old, and I thought this is a perfect time for him to get to learn the art of lighting fireworks, right? Uh, it's, it's like a rite of passage thing to get to light the fireworks, and so we always buy the little kid packages at the fireworks stand that have the fountains and the sparklers and all the things, you know what I mean? So, um, so we, we're lighting the fireworks, and, and, and you always have your audience, you know, the, the family members that are out there. And as we would light them, everybody would yell, run, Dax, run, you know, because that's, that's part of the fun. Whenever you light the fireworks, part of the fun is getting away before they explode, right? Um, have you seen the video that's, uh, it's one of my favorite videos every 4th of July of the guy lighting it, and it's, he's in a wheelchair that won't get away, right? That's a great video. You should run, Terry. That's right. Uh, so yeah, you can check that out today. It's always a classic on, on 4th of July. But anyway, so one of the best parts of, of fireworks is running away. And so uh, my son, we're doing that. We're, we're lighting them. We're running away. Well, one time, um, you know, as, as we're out there, I'm telling, I'm telling our, our audience, like, guys, Dad's here, I'm in control, I've got it, all right, be cool. Well, one time we, we lit this little thing, it was this little tube, I don't know what was in it, but something was gonna explode. And uh, when he lit it and went to run away, it fell over and was facing right at us. And, uh, and then everybody started really yelling, run, run, Dax. Uh, so that time though, I didn't let him just run, I scooped him up and uh, we got out of there, it, it exploded, right? And I, and I told everybody, I, said, I told you, I got this. Dad's in control. Uh, be cool. You know, dads, I think it's something that, that, that we do where we'll just let our kids kind of get maybe right on the edge of, of disaster uh, striking. And then we, we swoop in and we save the day. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's how we learn things, right? And so I think this morning uh, we're going to kind of hear our Heavenly Father say the same thing. It's okay. I'm in control, I see you, I love you, I've got this, right? No matter our circumstances, God is in control. That's what we're gonna see. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Job chapter 36 with me this morning. Job chapter 36, is, as you're turning there, I wanna kind of set the stage a little bit. This, this book um, is a thought experiment. We've said that a couple of times as we've been in this study. It's a thought experiment. It's meant to teach us wisdom. And uh, wisdom as we face this world, as we struggle with loss, as we, as we deal with self-doubt, as we wrestle with questions and facing situations that we find ourselves in, this book speaks realistically about suffering and it explores the limits of our understanding and it illustrates how we are to go about it. And if I had to summarize the book of Job, I would summarize it 
this way, that we often suffer, we rarely understand why, but we can always trust. We often suffer, we rarely understand why, but we can always trust. And most of the book of Job is about Job struggling to understand why he is facing the things that he is facing. Uh, We see that disaster strikes in chapter one and two, and then really the rest of the book is him sitting there wondering why it's happening, which is kind of ironic because chapter one tells us why it's happening, right? God had this conversation with uh, the, the Satan, the accuser, and uh, he, he's not punishing Job. In fact, he's kind of propping Job up to say, look how righteous Job is. He can withstand whatever you throw, throw at him. But all throughout this book, Job is never told that. Even when God starts speaking in chapter 38, Job isn't told why. God just starts talking about his goodness and his might. And uh, it points us to, it, it, it allows us to wrestle with and, and understand that there's just some things God doesn't need us to know, right? There's just some things that we don't need to know. And uh, when, when those things happen, though, the, the bigger question is, is what will our outlook be? How will we face it? And so in chapter uh, three through um, about 31, Job is talking with these three friends. And we've been looking at that as we've been in the study. And uh, the three friends, um, they, they give, you know, they're really harsh. They, they accuse Job of being unjust and, and a man who doesn't know God, which we know both of those things to be untrue. And you get to the end of the book and, and God rebukes the three friends and tells them they need to repent. Well, in chapter 32, a new guy shows up. His name's Elihu, and he just shows up kind of out of nowhere, and uh, he, he just rambles and talks for five chapters. And he's one of those guys who just loves the sound of his own voice, and he's arrogant, and he's harsh, and uh, he's not mentioned before, he's not mentioned after he gives his speech, but he shows up and, and just talks for five chapters. And it leaves us to go, is he giving good advice? Or is he like the other three friends? And um, as I was studying this week, I, I was comforted a little bit whenever I read in commentaries by guys way smarter than me that go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but he, he says some things that the three friends say, bad advice. He also says some stuff that God is going to repeat in chapter 38. So in a lot of ways, we don't know much about him. We don't necessarily know who he is. But we do know that the content of his speech was a helpful ministry to Job in this season because Job was wrestling with with some serious questions, some serious uh, doubt. And the things that Elihu says here in chapter uh, 36, where we're going to be this morning, uh, soften Job's heart to where when, when God starts speaking in 38, Job, Job is ready to receive the things that God says, all right? So, so the things that Elihu says... Uh, are true, and they're helpful, and they're good, even for us. And um, the, basically, the essence of his speech is that God is great, God is righteous, and he is just, and he's worthy to be praised. Okay, so that's the essence of, of, his, of his speech. And, and he's trying to point out that, Job, you're not the saint that you think that you are. 
Like you're not as righteous as you think that you are. And see, Job was moving towards uh, self-reliance. Uh, he, was, he was moving uh, towards a self-righteous attitude that was just not healthy at all. And so Elihu comes in and, and rebukes that and helps him see that God is in control even when we don't understand. Okay, so God is in control even when we don't understand. And we're gonna see a couple of different things here in this, uh, in this study. I'm gonna show you three things that I think this passage is saying that I think is a real comfort to us. Whenever we're in those moments of, of suffering or doubt and, 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 and we can trust that God is in control, all right? So look with me in Job chapter 36. Let's start in verse four. It says, indeed, my words are not false. One who has complete knowledge is with you. Now, I think this is kind of the thesis verse for what uh, this chapter is about, that he says, there's one who has complete knowledge and he is with you. Now, Elihu was arrogant, but he's not arrogant enough to say that he's the one that has complete knowledge. He's talking about God. He's saying God has complete knowledge and he's with you, okay? He's with you. Look at verse five. Yes, God is mighty, but he despises no one. He understands all things. Even when we don't understand, he does. That's what he's saying there in verse five. Verse six, he does not keep the wicked alive, but he gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his gaze from the righteous, but he seats them forever with enthroned kings and they are exalted. So the first thing that we see here as we're looking at the, the fact that God is in control, even when we don't understand, is that number one, he sees you. He sees you. So they go into this conversation about righteous versus wicked and, and who is God really in favor of? That's the question. Because this book kind of presents this, this idea, well, if God is just, why do good things happen to bad people? And if God is just, why do bad things happen to good people, right? And so there's this question here that's been on Job's mind, like why is God favoring the wicked? Why is God doing this to me even though I'm a righteous person? He felt wronged because he had not been repaid good for good. Job felt wronged. And he claims righteousness. He believes his suffering is undeserved and that his obedience is underappreciating. Basically, he is saying, he's implying that God is not for the righteous. But we know that's not true, right? Romans 8 tells us, uh, Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Go down to verse 31 of that, of that chapter. It says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so we know that God is for the righteous. And, and so maybe the best way that I could explain that or illustrate that to you is the way that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 13. He gives this illustration, this parable uh, of the, the wheat versus the weeds, okay? And he says in, in Matthew 13, just listen to what he says. Jesus presented another parable to them. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. And when the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the landowner's servant came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then, then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. And so they asked, So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked. And he said, No. 
When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. This is illustrating that God is for the righteous, not the wicked. God is for the righteous. And their long life is not some indication of God's favor. In fact, I would say it this way, that the preservation of the wicked is attributed to God's favor on the righteous. Because the only way that the wicked remains is because God does not want to harm the righteous when he destroys them. All right, so it's the favor of God. And so there is coming a day, as this this talks about, that God will separate the righteous from the wicked. He will separate the wheat from the weeds. And and, and the the wheat, the righteous, will be gathered into uh, his house while the weeds are thrown into the fire, right? And so Elihu here is helping Job see that God is not favoring the wicked. God's eyes are on the righteous, all right? And so I want you to see that, that, that he sees us. His, his eyes are set on his children. Did you see where it says um, there in verse 7? He does not withdraw his gaze from the righteous. He doesn't look away. He doesn't get preoccupied. He's not like on his cell phone or something, just kind of just not paying any attention. He doesn't look away. And I think it's helpful for us to hear that, right? That in the midst of our suffering, when we feel abandoned or we feel alone, that God is not looking away. He's seeing it. He looks right at it. His gaze is set on you. There's other scriptures that talk about just the intimacy that God has with his righteous. That Psalm 116 says that, that he leans in to hear the prayers of the righteous. He leans in to hear, that he, that he sees, as Job 36 talks about. Zephaniah 3.17 says that he, he's cheering and singing over you. Right? He's losing his voice, cheering and singing over you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Have you ever, uh, have you ever met a parent that maybe just loves their kid a little too much. You know what I'm talking about? Like just posting pictures of them all the time. And you're like, man, that kid's not really that cute. But I'm glad that you love them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, have you ever been to a little league baseball game? You'll see parents there that love their kids a little too, too much. I umpired a little league baseball for about two weeks. That's all it took. And uh, man, parents are, are ruthless. They're just, there's mean, but they just, they just love their kids so much. You know, I I didn't quite understand it, but now I have three of my own. I I get it. And Christian, I want you to hear that your heavenly father looks at you the same way. He doesn't take his eyes off of you. His gaze is set on you. And as verse 7 talks about, he has plans to exalt you. And so I don't know, man. I don't know the things that you're facing. I know that they're probably tough. And you probably don't understand why, but you can know this morning that he is with you and that he sees you. He sees you. So God is in control. Even when we don't understand, number one, he sees us. Number two, he calls you. He calls you. Look at verses eight. 
says, if people are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction, God tells them what they have done and how arrogantly they have transgressed. Verse 5 says that he despises no one, and verse 8 says that he calls out to all in chains. And, and what, does he, what does he say when he calls out? Verse 9 tells us that he lovingly reveals sin, that he lovingly reveals sin. I mean, think about this, that he doesn't just leave us in our, in our sin to just kind of deal with it, that he, he reveals it to us, that he opens our ears to it so that we can get out of the chains and the cords. I want you to hear that our ultimate problem in this world is sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned. We, we miss the mark. We miss God's perfect mark. We've all sinned, and that's a big problem because Romans 6.23 says that the payment for that, what we deserve for that sin, is death. And so our ultimate problem is sin. So can you see how gracious it is, how loving it is that God tells us about that. He reveals it to us, and not only that, He opens our ears so that we can understand it. It's grace, and it is love that He does that. And so Elihu goes on here in, in verse 10, and he, um, he, he, he begins this if-then statement. All right, he says, verse 10, He opens their ears to correction and tells them to repent from their iniquity. And if they listen and serve Him, then they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they do not listen, they will cross the river of death and die without knowledge. What it's saying here is that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences, and throughout the Bible, God uses these if-then statements, uh, and he puts it in front of his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's what's called the Shema, uh, basically love the Lord your God, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God puts it out in front and he, he kind of puts these two options out. And he says in Deuteronomy 30, 15, he says, See, today I have set before you life and prosperity or death and adversity. And he basically says, choose one. He says, For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But... If your heart turns away and you do not listen and you're led astray to bow and worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish. And so it's this if-then thing that God has graciously revealed his goodness and our sinfulness. And we're now all faced with this if-then thing. And, and Job chapter 36, that's exactly what's hap happening here in verse 11. If they listen and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity but, verse 12, if they do not listen, they will cross the river of death and die without knowledge. That is the thing that every single one of us needs to wrestle with this morning. That God, just as he did in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just as he did in Job chapter 36, he puts this choice in front of us and he says, if you will turn to me, if you will obey my commands and love me, then you will receive life. But if you don't, then you'll receive death. And so the good news of what Jesus came to do, that on the cross and in the empty grave, he provided a way out. He provided a way for us to choose life. At just the right moment, while we were still in our sin, Romans 5, 8 says, he died for us. And so if we'll just confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, and, and he will save us. And so that if-then statement is in front of every single one of us this morning. And so if you don't know Jesus, I urge you, 
to choose life. Choose Jesus. After service, you can talk to some folks over in this room, or, or you can even just take the card in front of you right now and fill that out and just check on there, I want to follow Jesus. Place it on the box as you leave, or come see me after service. I'd love to talk to you about it. But this, this question, this if-then question, is in front of every single one of us this morning. So, God is in control, even when we don't understand. He sees you, he calls you, and number three, he pursues you. He pursues you. Look at verse 16. It says, indeed, he lured you from the jaws of distress to a spacious and unconfined place. What he's saying there is he, that, that word lured could mean like pursuing or wooing you. And not like you Arkansas Razorback people like to do about the woo thing. I don't get it. But not that kind. He's pursuing you, right? He's pursuing you. Job, don't you see how God is pursuing you? That's what Elihu is saying here. Verse 17, yet now you're obsessed with the judgment due the wicked. Elihu says, don't you see that God is pursuing you, but you're so concerned with what God's doing with the wicked. That's, that's the point that he goes. And then he goes on to urge Job to respond appropriately. Just that if-then statement. Elihu says, Job, respond appropriately. And he starts by saying, uh, warning him against the things uh, to turn away from. Let's look at those in verse 18. He says, be careful that no one lures you with riches and, and do not let a large ransom lead you astray. Can your wealth or all your physical exertion keep you from distress? Basically, the first warning is this. Don't sell out for what can't help. Don't turn to money. Don't turn to those things and look to buy your way out of it. You're going to miss the message that God has for you in this season. So, so don't look to get out of it. Don't sell out for what can't help. The second warning is in verse, verse 20. Do not long for the night. In the Bible, the word night or darkness is used to depict death. So don't long for the night. Don't long for death. What he's saying there is he's, don't wish for death instead of facing the issue. Multiple times throughout the book of Job, we see Job wrestle with this idea of self-harm or death in order to fix his situation. And Elihu's saying, that's not the answer. It's not the answer. The third warning is in verse 21. Be careful that you do not turn to iniquity, for that is why you have been tested by affliction. He's saying, don't turn to evil. So the three warnings, don't sell out for what can't help, don't wish for death instead of facing the issue, and then don't turn to evil. See, Elihu was afraid that Job would turn to a life of sin. And, and as a pastor, as someone who's been in ministry for several years now, I've seen this, where people will be in a situation and they'll just give up on it and go, you know what, if it's gonna be this hard, I'm just gonna go live the way that I wanna live anyway. And they forget all about that goodness is only found in the presence of God and that running to sin and different things that never satisfy bring their own bit of suffering. But we see people do this. They'll turn and they'll turn to evil. And so Elihu is saying, Job, don't turn away from God. This if-then thing that's put in front of you, don't turn away from God. Don't turn to death. And instead he encourages him to turn towards God. And that's to be the same thing that I would encourage you to do this morning. Look at verse 22. Look, God shows himself exalted by his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed his way for him? 
And who has declared you have done wrong? Remember that you should praise his work, which people have sung about. And he goes on the rest of that chapter and chapter in all of chapter 37, talking about the goodness and the might of God. And he's saying he's worthy to be praised. He deserves worship no matter what you're going through. He deserves worship. Your pain doesn't change that fact, right? That's what Elihu is saying here. The book of Job, as we've seen, clearly presents a sovereign God, someone all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely loving, And it also presents to us a God who is good, who sees us, who calls us, and who pursues us. And we can be certain of the nearness of God, and we can be certain of the goodness of God, even while being confused at the things he's allowed to happen in our lives. That's the point that he's making here. Philippians 4, 7, uh, Paul says, says, and the peace of God, it surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying, there's just this peace that we can't even understand, that we can't explain, that comes on you because of what Jesus has done for you. And it just provides peace and comfort that points to worship of God. We see Job do this uh, throughout the book. In, in chapter one, after tragedy hits, he, he says, he sits down and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. In chapter 19, two weeks ago, we talked about how he felt uh, betrayed. He felt all these things, but he sits down and he says, but I know that my redeemer lives. And at the end, he's gonna stand on the dust and I'm gonna see him with my eyes, right? Job understood this peace that surpasses all understanding. This past, uh, this past Wednesday evening, about 1030 at night, I got a text message that was one of those that just makes you just set up and makes everything around you stop. Um, have a, a friend, we, before moving to Conway, my family, we spent uh, two and a half years in Northwest Louisiana on staff at a church there, and we have these friends in Louisiana who were finding themselves on Wednesday evening in the midst of a crisis. Uh, my friend, they, they had a bunch of people over from the church and uh, the adults were inside and all the kids were out back. And uh, somehow uh, my friend's three-year-old little boy uh, was found on the bottom of the swimming pool. And uh, so somebody jumped in and got him out of there. And when they did, he had no pulse. He wasn't breathing. Thankfully, uh, there were some nurses, first responders there at uh, the party. And so they began giving CPR to try and bring this boy back. And after six rounds of CPR, they were able to get his little heart pumping again. But they rush him to the hospital. And as they get into the, the hospital room, the doctors come in and they said, it's not good. He's showing signs of serious brain damage, and we we don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. He's not responding to us at all. And my friend, the dad of the little boy, said, well, we know that we serve a God who heals. And I have another friend who was in the room that said that that room was dark, and it was heavy, and it was just, I mean, you can imagine, right? And, and And she says that when he said those words, when the dad said those words, It was like that room, that hospital room turned into a sanctuary and they began to pray and trust God to heal this little boy. And even as I was writing this sermon in my office on Thursday, this news was just heavy on me. 
that here's this little boy, they don't even know if he's gonna live or not, he's under sedation, and the faith that the mom and dad had and that all those around them were sur surrounding them, coming together to pray for God to heal this, this boy is just, it's incredible. Friday, a uh, couple days after the, the incident, they were finally able to do the MRI and the MRI came back and said, guess what? His brain is perfect. They brought him out of sedation. Uh, he's talking, he's walking the hallways. I mean, it's a miracle that God healed this little boy. But in this process, God used my friend Alex and his faith as he led out the dad of the little boy. And God's glory and his goodness is on display for thousands to see this morning because of it. And so I just want us to hear, man, that, that God is great, that God is good, that he, that he sees you, that he calls you, that he pursues you you and he is worthy of your worship. And listen, the things that you're going through don't change any of that. That he is good. And the book of Job teaches us very clearly that God intends to display his glory in the lives of his children as they continue to serve him in the midst of life's trials. And so if you're a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then realize your very suffering can display the glory of God as you serve and worship him in a way that the world can't comprehend. We often suffer. We rarely understand why, but we can always trust him. By the grace of God, we can always trust him because he sees us, he calls us, he pursues us, and he is worthy of our praise. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.